Hey, welcome everybody. Another Round the Town podcast. We have a very, very special guest today, Anna Sazanov from um, the Ukraine, actually been living in the United States, had several roles here, um, and very excited that, that she's here today. She had recently been over the Ukraine, uh, and we're going to hear a little bit about her trip, what she saw, what we can do as a community. But also, we're going to hear about Anna's story, uh, and I think it's a very, very cool story. Um, and I hope those who are listening will one day get to meet her. Um, her personality is affection. Uh, um, did I say affects it? What did I just say? I just made up a word. And, um, her personality is very infectious, um, and her heart is, is golden. You can see it in her eyes, and you can see it in her smile. And so as we're very privileged to have her here today. Um, we got to meet uh, almost a year ago, longer, and um, just really excited that she's here. But, you know, Anna, why don't you just give us a little bit about, of your background? Tell us how you landed in Columbia, South Carolina, of all places in the United States, and then we'll go from there. Hi. Wow. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you for having me and kind of allowing me to share my story. And thank you for the great compliments especially about my smile. I'm trying to smile a lot. Um, so yes, I was born in Ukraine back when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. So I was under that regime. So freedom kind of was questionable back in the days. Um, and also I'm coming from a Jewish heritage. So we had to hide our Jewish identity for many, many years. My grandfather is a Holocaust survivor. Basically by last name is Sazanov, but by blood I'm Lieberman. My great-grandmother remarried to a non-Jewish fellow in order to survive. So they had to change the edification of the entire family in order to survive. So I grew up in Ukraine as a perfect Ukrainian girl with no kind of Jewish identity or knowledge about that. But still, my family suffered from discrimination, anti-Semitism. And back in the days, because once again, it was part of the Soviet Union, you cannot leave the Soviet Union. So no matter how much you suffer, you have to stay. And only after the Soviet Union collapse. And also with the influence of Chernobyl, and I lived um, 90 miles from Chernobyl, the joke that I'm sharing with everybody, that's the reason that I'm glowing, um, kind of pushed my family. It's good for the skin, yeah, right? Good for the skin. As you can see, that's the glow <laughs> that I'm sharing with everybody. Um, so my parents basically made a decision to move to Israel. So with the help of one of the Jewish organizations, I found myself at the age of six without knowing anything about this This country of Israel, uh, we moved there. Um, so I started a new life in a different country, different culture, different language, everything. So I grew up in Israel most of my life. On my bucket list, by the way. Yeah. On your bucket list? That's I awesome. Well, you know, I was in Egypt for about 20 days on a program and, you know, simple minded me said, Hey, I'm here. Why don't we go do Jordan and Israel while we're here? Well, you can't just jump from a Muslim country to Israel. You got to go back to where you came from and then come back. It's it's very, uh, I didn't understand how political that was. And, you know, we were like, oh, let's just go. Uh, so I'm going to make the trip at some point. Political, security, everything. And I'm more than happy to help you with that and yeah, to get you to Israel, to show you around and to show the... Let's do it. Yes, the fun <laughs> things in Israel. There's so many things to see. Uh, the food, the do. people. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, I, met, uh, I met several uh, residents, uh, full-time residents from Tel Aviv, and they're like, once you come going to want to come back. Exactly. Although Tel Aviv was listed as one of the most expensive cities in the world. Yes, it's true. Um, but it's worth every cent. 
it's great to be to be in visit there. Anyway, back to the story. I found myself six years ago um, at Emory University working with one of the Jewish organizations. I did a job that called the Israel Fellow. Didn't you do something before then? Um, oh, there are a lot of things before there. Yeah, you can't right, just right. jump to Correct, that correct. One of the things that I did in Israel that's mandatory is uh, um, military service. So I was a basic training commander for two years. So I told people what to do all day long. Same thing as I'm doing now. Just kidding. Uh, but... Um, so yeah. gentlemen, don't be fooled by her beautiful eyes and her smile. She knows how to use an Uzi. M16, but yeah. Uh, Uzis are out, M16s are in, and there is a new weapon, Israeli development called Tavor. But anyway, M16s, that's the thing. Um, so <laughs> most of, uh, most of, I commended mostly on ma- males. Um, and that's the beauty in Israel, that it doesn't matter what's your gender, you go to the military and you have this mix between both genders. And you don't see it a lot in the U.S. Um, and it's something very empowering to be in that position. And also kind of like it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. Once you wear the uniform, once you wear the the, the brigade that you're part of, the tags of the brigade that you're part of, you, you feel the pride of doing that and you become one. One for the state of Israel. And... I took a lot from the military service. I did. It helped me with my leadership skills, management skills, you know, the age of 18, 19 to, to lead hundreds of people. That's insane. Like it takes time. Here, I interact with, with college students. When they were 17, they were, you know, thinking what college they will go to. When I was 17, I was thinking, okay, which unit I want to be part of and what, like, where I'm going to dedicate my life in the next two years. So definitely a meaningful service, yeah. And most of my soldiers did not want to serve, did not want to be there. And it takes kind of like a unique skill to convince or kind of like inspire somebody to be there and to be there for the three years or the two years service that they have to be there. And is it age, is it set up like you have to do it – between like 18 and 21, is that? Correct. Right after high school, yeah. you go there. So Instead of college, we go to the military. <clears throat> and, you know, you become a more mature, an adult. You know how to use a weapon, and you learn about the values of the state of Israel and the values of the military, um, and kind of like how to be working in a group and how to support your peers and how to make sure they don't die and how to trust them that they will support you with whatever you need. And that's a big thing to learn when you're 18 or 19. I was living in uh, Switzerland working uh, one summer, and um, I was getting very close um, to a time frame, and there was a knock on the door, and it was the military, and they were informing me that if I stayed two weeks longer that I would have to begin my mandatory military duty as a citizen and I was like well I'm getting going back to college so I didn't have that experience but I came close to being so-called drafted without knowing it um at that time period is it a one-year service yep and then two weeks every year you know two weeks random year here and there nice fully trained ready to roll uh summer wolves as they say so I didn't have to do it but what a great experience uh and really also kind of sets the stage for your next step I think my next step was 
traveling the world before that. Um, it's a thing that we do in Israel, I feel like before, because we've been trapped for in this in this military experience with in this small country of Israel, like after we finished the service was like, we go travel. So I spent two years abroad, um, Central America, Brazil, going back and forth. And then I started uh, my college experience, studied business and economics, very far away from what I'm doing right now. And after working in the industry and working in different startups and kind of like gaining other experience, I decided that something's missing. Something in my heart told me that I can do better things for this world and make it a better place. So I wrapped five boxes and two suitcases and moved to Atlanta, Georgia and started working college campuses. And the college, uh, the university that I worked at was Emory, Emory University, Atlanta, Georgia. And I worked for a Jewish organization called Hillel. It's a home away from home for Jewish students on campus. And I didn't know anything about college students. I didn't know about anything about the college experience that they're going through. The only thing I knew, it's American Pie. That was my <laughs> impression about what's going to happen on campus. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> You should have watched Animal House before that. And then you really gone, I'm not going there. So all I thought is like parties and what what is it? The whole the whole Greek-like thing. Why are you guys going crazy? Uh, but I met amazing students that inspired me and very, you know, sophisticated, smart students that also made me think about who I am and what's my identity. And after one semester working with them, I'm like, yeah, I want to continue working in the nonprofit world and I want to keep doing this work and kind of like inspire people to be proud of their own identity. And they also helped me to kind of reconnect to my Ukrainian identity because when I moved back to Israel from Ukraine in order to fit in, into the Israeli culture, I erased my Ukrainian identity. So when I was eight years old, I told my parents, no more Russian, no more Ukrainians, Rak Ivrit, only Hebrew. And I just became Israeli at every level that I could. Um, so I kind of pushed my different identity away. But the students that I work with at Emory College, Emory Hillel, helped me to understand that I should be proud of my identity. Your heritage, yeah. Yeah. And I should like explore more because I met students that they were born in the U.S. to Russian-speaking Jewish parents and they knew Russian more than I did or Ukrainian or whatever. And it felt so weird to me. I'm like, I was born there. I should speak the language. I should be proud of whatever we did or do in the holidays. I should, I should you know, put the flag out there and mm -hmm. be part of it. So I reconnected to my roots uh, with the help of college students. And that was great. Uh, and after two years working at Emory Hillel, I moved to Boston uh, to get my master's in Jewish leadership and MBA in nonprofit management. So I spent two years in Boston. During that time, COVID hit, and that was an interesting experience. <laughs> exactly. Let's say. Um, I think we'd like to forget those two years. Yeah. And also like Bostonians, they can be very cold. Uh, it's also calm as the weather and also personality and COVID made it more to the extent of that because it's isolated people completely. So my entire grads program, I was in front of a screen and studying on Zoom, but it didn't stop me from doing some good. Um, so me and a friend of mine from school, we discovered a need in the community and many Jewish medical professionals didn't have access to kosher meals or Passover. 
because back in the day it was they were stuck in the hospital 24-7 and they cannot like or order or go shop for kosher meals for Passover. So basically within 24 hours we got access to many meals and we start to deliver, um, deliver kosher meals to their front door. So once they come back from the hospital from their shift, they have a meal wait for them. And that was when Juber was born. And Juber is a combo with Jewish and Uber. Uh, so we deliver Jewish experience all the way to your front door. And after feeding Jewish medical professional, we saw that there is additional need in the community. So we also expanded it to Holocaust survivors and low-income seniors. So every Friday, they received a meal to their front door that also with that was our Shabbat kit, so they can experience kind of the the holiness of, of Shabbat services. And this was homes. all funded through donations? That was all funded through donations, and also we inspired the local community to purchase Shabbat meals from the caterer that we work with. It was before the PPP, so basically a lot of caterers, a lot of businesses were very suffering. Yep. Um, so we encouraged the community to purchase Shabbat meals, and for every two meals that are purchased, the uh, caterer donated a meal. So that was a win-win-win situation for everybody. So all of that happened while I was in grad school, um, trying to graduate and also finding a job. And that's kind of like led me to Colombia. So one of my friends that used to work with the southeastern region and with Colombia as well, he told me, hey, they're looking for executive director in Colombia. I'm like, where's Colombia? I didn't know Colombia exists on the map. I'm sorry, but I didn't. Um, she comes from the, you know, this powerhouse country that's not much bigger than us. And, and she's, she, she's downplaying Columbia. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and yeah, I started the interview and also, also I told my friend, Ryan, listen, I'm young. Um, I'm a female and I'm a foreigner. I'm not sure how a Southern community will welcome me. I'm not sure how much uh, I'm, I'm going to fit in. And one thing led to another and few months later, I moved to Colombia and I became the executive director of Colombia Jewish Federation. And as of now, I was the youngest executive director of all 146 federations across North America. The only Ukrainian, that for sure. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. It's a very big deal. So yeah. when you first came here to interview, what was your thoughts? It was also during COVID and oh. I think it was one of the coldest days in Colombia. There was no one in the streets. And I'm like, huh, it's probably because of COVID or probably because it was uh, it was cold. I don't know. I was freezing. It was it was winter. Um, but compared to Boston, it wasn't that cold. So I was driving around. I was walking around and everybody were very welcoming. Everybody greeted me with a big smile and kind of like offered to help with whatever they can to make me feel very welcomed. And that's the one of the main things that I really enjoy about Colombia. People are super, extremely nice. And after spending two years in Boston, that was kind of like cold in multi, multiple levels. It was very nice to kind of like feel the warmth. And definitely in the summer, I felt the warmth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's good for the skin. Good for the skin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. humidity is good for the skin. <laughs> Keeps you young. Keeps you young. So the students that really kind of got you integrated into the U.S. and kind of catapulted your, your hey, I really want to identify with my heritage. Do you keep in touch with them? Oh, yes. Many of them. Some of them are now uh, residents of Israel and citizens of Israel. Yeah, really? They decide to move go to back. Israel. I don't know if to go back, basically, to not live anymore in the U.S. US. And, yeah. And wow. kind of to live in their second home, Israel. Yes. 
Um, they're very close to my heart, and I think it's mutual. Wow. So that's great. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. You know, we talked a little bit, you know, about your family roots, and I think that was a real driver for you, especially with, with what was happening in the Ukraine. I know before you left last spring, it was, you know, you were on a mission and and really wanted to, because you still have family yeah. in Ukraine. My entire family is there, including my parents. Your parents are back in mm-hmm. the Ukraine. I knew your grandmother was there, and cousins, cousins, yeah, mm-hmm. cousins, aunts, all, all, all the shenanigans. Tell us about what happened. Planning the trip? No, I mean really, because there were a lot of logistics and a lot of people pulling you left and right. I mean, I, I can remember, especially when everybody was trying to figure out how do I help, what do I do, and nobody knew where to go. Just tell us a little bit about how it was to kind of just get everything geared up to go, and at the same time, you know kind of lead into, hey, this is what I saw when I hit the ground. Yeah. I'll, I will start with um, with February 24th, 2022, when the war hit and everything started. Um, I was in my apartment in Colombia, kind of like waking up into destruction, into tanks, going into Kiev, into missile attacks everywhere, into a chaos and this fear of, the second largest military in the world attacking my homeland. And I'm on the other side of the world. Thank God my parents made it out of Ukraine a week before the war started. Um, And they did it by accident. My dad had to go back to Israel to run some errands and they made it out. Um, But when it happened, it, it, it was kind of shocking because nobody knew what's the abilities of Ukraine as a country to defend Russia. And we talk about Russia. We've been terrified from Russia for years. And many people reach out to me and say, like, I'm so sorry. Probably your country will, like, fall in a few days. And in, in my head, I'm like, you do not know Ukrainians. We're strong people. And because you're fighting for the right thing, for your freedom, you will keep fighting. So I knew internally that we're going to push and we're going to, to survive. So I was very grateful to work for the organization for Columbia Jewish Federation because basically we have a lot of partner organizations on the ground that support and do the work. And then we started a big fundraiser and kind of raise awareness, et cetera. So my mind was all about Ukraine. And I did what every person my age doing. I went to social media and I started to record myself and I started to share. And I went to different different platforms just to tell the story of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people and to kind of like explain what led to this war because it's not happening in 2022. It's happened. This war started in 2014 when Russia first invaded to Ukraine. The big explosion and the big invasion happened in 2022. Yes. So the collaboration with the partner organization that we had led me to be in the front and basically at the border of Ukraine and Poland. So I spent two weeks greeting and welcoming refugees that crossed the borders. And I was greeting them in their own language and I was wearing a traditional Ukrainian hairband. And I kind of like, Dobre vecher, Dobre ranok, and I greeted them in their own language. And the, they had a huge smile on their face when they heard their language because many of the volunteers are international volunteers that have no idea about the culture, the Ukrainian culture, how to approach them. And I was so happy to to help them in the most basic level. And um, 
imagine that I met people that were on the road for days. So to get, usually it takes about, I don't know, 16 hours to get from East Ukraine to West Ukraine, a little bit more than that. But during the war, in order to avoid any attacks or any interaction with Russian troops, they had to take different routes and different, you know, try to avoid them. So it took them usually 48, 72, more than that. And they were in vans or volunteer buses that usually you can fit 25 people there, but they fit 40 people there because you, you want to take as many people as you can and bring them out. So I met people that haven't had a decent shower for a few days that has this fear in their eyes, and they were so happy to cross the border. And for them, they think that they're in safety and everything is going to be fine. For me, as a volunteer that knows what's going to come ahead of them, I knew that it's only the beginning for them because the majority of them do not know English. They only know Ukrainian. For many of them, it was the first time ever that they crossed the border. It was the first time ever that they saw different people and not Ukrainians. One of the most impactful stories or the powerful moments, um, I was at the, the doctor's office over there on the border. So everything is, imagine, like a camp of many tents. And each tent provides different services. One of them is the doctors. And he was an American doctor, so I translated from English to Ukrainian and vice versa. And I stepped out to bring, get the next patient, and I meet an elderly couple in their probably 80-plus and the, the husband shared that his, his wife is, is dizzy. And I asked, okay, what's, what's happening? Where are you from? And they came from very far eastern area in Ukraine. And one thing led to another, and I discovered that this elder lady, she's also blind. So the entire journey in, you know, packed full bus full of people, she did when she's blind with no idea what's going to happen next. So I helped them, she got some medication, and I put them on the bus. And what kept her kind of like in spirit, because it's very easy to let them down or like to make them become very upset. Like I don't want to push any nerve or to ask them what exactly is happening on the east side of Ukraine. So she kept sharing with me stories. And one of the stories that she shared is that she had a dream that she's getting to the age uh, of 100. And I told her, Olena, you and I are going to celebrate your 100th birthday in Ukraine after we're going to rebuild the country and everything's going to be great. And I gave them a big, big hug to both of them. We gave them some warm blankets, some food for the road. And I have no idea what's happening with them right now. Where, where did, I mean, being at the border and from what I saw on the news, I mean, you're talking about thousands of people making their way to the Polish border. Where did people go from there? I mean, how was that? Did, did, were people going on trains and certain communities said, hey, we've got room for, for folks here? Were they splitting in different countries? How did that network? Because the scene that I saw on the news was just mind-blowing, mm -hmm. mind-blowing. And, you know, and mainly uh, elderly folks. And, and women and children. Women and children. Yep. And I will say that all of this operation on the border – was created by volunteers. There was no government or, I don't know, whatever body out there to, to, to create all of this. Everything happened with volunteers, different NGOs, international NGOs that came all together and like started to operate that and help people. Yes, millions of people crossed the border. 
So it's going to create its own system. So locals was welcoming refugees and they can stay with the locals. Airbnb create a partnership so other people around the world order Airbnbs for those Ukrainians. So after you cross the border, you take a bus and this bus takes you to the train station. From the train station, you can choose wherever you want to go. And there is also refugee camps, two main refugees camps in that area that they can stay over for the night and then continue from okay. there. And they can choose if they want to stay in Poland or if they want to immigrate to a different country. But imagine, like, the majority of the people that I spoke with, I asked them where you want to go, and they said home. But for many of them, home is not an option. Right. So you need to choose kind of like out of nowhere where you want to continue. So right now we don't have a lot of people that cross the border and leave Ukraine. We have more people that are coming back to Ukraine. And that's interesting. Trying to rebuild. Trying to rebuild, trying to be with their own people. And my parents made it back to Ukraine as well. I asked them if they want to come to the U.S. They said, that's nice, but no. Um, and they they staying in Ukraine right now. They want to be part of this this whole revolution. Are they at home? At home. So what, what did they see when they got home? Oh, they're on the western side of Ukraine, so knock on wood, nothing okay. happened to, to their home and their region. It's all quiet, but if Belarus will attack, that will be a problem, but they're, they're okay. They're all safe. Um, but many of Ukrainians came back, and one of them, kind of like we don't know what all the consequences of this war. One of the things that I saw on the border that many children and, and women are crossing, and there is there was certain point there was no registration for volunteers so you can put like a yellow jacket and pretend that you're a volunteer and we don't know what's your background who you are and you're just offering a ride for people and we heard about a lot of cases of women disappearing so the amount of human trafficking and sex trafficking that happened from the war we have no idea we have no idea the numbers now and also like there's no records because yes you see the person crossing the border and then Nobody's recording them anywhere. So, so there's no, there was no database set up mm -hmm. for people to put in so family could track and help and keep in touch. It was just, we got to go in there and fix it. And then you had the wolves come in and take advantage of the situation. Exactly. Wow. It's like I had not heard that. Yeah. So one of the stories, we have somebody, um, like a neighbor of ours from Ukraine. So she crossed the border. She's in her early 30s she crossed the border with her two kids six and eight crossed the border and she lived in Poland for a while and then she shared a story with my mom that um, some ladies been offered by an elderly lady to kind of like come I will give you a job and everything's got to be fine so imagine a situation you're a female you're by yourself you have two kids you don't have an income you don't have anywhere to put the kids money's running short like, yes, the government is helping, but to what extent? You need to figure out what's next. And then you have somebody come and offers you some help and a job and a job and somebody approach you with, your same, with the same language. And then suddenly those ladies disappear. And nobody can track them. So there is a lot of consequences to this war that we're not aware of. And I see those females that cross the border with nothing as heroes. So is is there an effort now to try to make sure this doesn't happen going forward and, and, and an effort to try to track people down and figure out where they are to make sure they're safe yes. and they're not human trafficking is just you know, 
to me, it's just hard that people could do that to each other. But, you know, it's unfortunately it's been going on for centuries and um, people still haven't learned. It's not the right thing to do. Yeah. So as of um, after a few months with people crossing the border, so the whole organization became it became more legit. So every volunteer had a volunteer card and they had to be registered somewhere. So there was a system in place. So only if you're like wearing a specific tag, so only then they know that you're a volunteer and you're legit. Um, as of organizations, I'm sure there is some efforts that happen in Europe right now. Um, I'm not aware of anything that's happening, but I hope there is some system in place. So what can we do today to continue to support? That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. So the second part of the story, um, after coming back from Poland, um, I felt like I'm not doing enough. And that led to another trip to Ukraine. So I spent some time visiting my family in Ukraine, and one thing led to another, and I found myself on the front lines of Ukraine, three kilometers from the Russians, providing humanitarian aid to a village that was liberated 24 hours before we arrived there. So I met people that were under occupation for at least seven months. No hot shower, no like disconnected from water, electricity, access to the world. All they know is Russian coming in and out. That's it. Um, and we also evacuated a family with us. And while we were waiting for the family to get ready, that was the point that the security team was, okay, everybody helmets on, vests, um, vests on because we're being targeted because the missiles are coming closer and closer. And you actually hear the whistle of the missile coming in. And once the family was ready, we pushed them into the vans. It was a mom with also two kids, two girls, six and eight. I'm hugging the, one of the kids and we're sprinting out. At one point, the driver throws his phone at me and tells me where to go, where do I need to go. Tell him to take a right. And thank God I oriented fast enough because if we were taking a left, we were in the hands of the Russians. So we made it out safely. We had a flat tire right after we sprinted out to more safe area but um that was a very scary moment and there was a prayer in uh, in in judaism shmai israel listening god basically and i'm in in the back of the van i'm just like repeatedly saying those sentences kind of like praying because that was a life life or death situation we were four vans that look kind of like weird the russians target us um, and when I came back to the U.S., I decided to resign from my job as the executive director of Columbia Jewish Federation, dedicate my effort to Ukraine and my, my country. Because the people that I went with to the front lines, none of them was Ukrainian. They were all international volunteers, people from Hawaii, Canada, um, Alaska, England, and me. The only Ukrainian there that going back to the U.S. to the privileged life here. So I figured I need to change something. So I resigned, and recently I finished my, my time at Columbia Jewish Federation, and I became a full-time kind of like in, in, yeah, full-time team member, an organization called Ukrainian Patriot, that is an organization that operates in Canada, Ukraine, um, and in the U.S., and all the activities happening in Ukraine. And basically this organization is a combination between international volunteers and Ukrainians, so we know what's the need on the ground. We know exactly who needs this medication or this, I don't know, winter gear. Um, and we work on five different pillars. 
I've had humanitarian aid, medical supply, protected gear, PTSD, and rebuilding Ukraine. There is a lot of work ahead of us. And one of the things that I see right now that people don't really think about Ukraine anymore, it's kind of became old news. And it makes sense. A war can be very tiring. It takes a lot of energy. And when everything has happened in the world, it's like, oh, another thing to worry about. So whoever's going to listen to this podcast, I want to share with you that I'm your Ukrainian friend. Whenever you hear about Ukraine, think about me, my family, my people that are still fighting. And they're fighting not only for Ukraine, but they're fighting for freedom and democracy. Ukraine kind of, it's a separation line between the good and the bad, between democracy and autocracy. So if we want to live in a free world, we need to act right now. Put your Ukrainian flags out there. Donate money if you can. Support in any way you can. The war is still going on. Being there and now back here and trying to drum up support and, and keeping the story alive, like you said. I mean, you know, it leads, it bleeds, and, you know, back and forth bleeds, it leads. It goes to these these iterations, and, and you're right. You know, I think the the constant discussion at, at the congressional level about funding, I do think it helps, but I don't know that people know what else to do and, and, you know, need the reminder that, Hey, you know, schools at some point got to be rebuilt. Communities have to be rebuilt. There's still a need for medical uh, supplies. There's, there's a need for basically everything, yeah. you know, clothing, housing, you name it, like you said, medical. So, what do we do or how do we help you make sure we're getting that message out? You know, what, what materials, what stories, what can we share as a community? And then I guess the second part of that is, is, is how are you engaging your fellow Ukrainians that are here in the U S to, to do the same thing in their community? Because if you think about it, I mean, suddenly a, a grassroots effort really, and we saw that last year. It, I mean, it all came together, but it's, it, it needs, it needs to keep going. It's not over. It's not done. You haven't rebuilt, you know, you're still fighting and, and people are still trying to survive. Yeah. And it's, again, it's only the beginning. This is only the tip of the iceberg. We have so many years to go to rebuild everything and nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow with Ukraine. Every day is a new day. Um, but the basic needs are right now to support the ones that are fighting, to support the ones that are in need, to to kind of like make sure that they have water, they have food, they have medication as you share. So what our community can do is, first of all, raise your Ukrainian flag. I keep saying that, but this is like kind of like the basic thing to do. And the main reason for that is I'm sharing those stories back in Ukraine to my community there. And that keeps them going to know that there is a huge support from the U.S. When Biden was in Ukraine, people were crying on the streets. They were so excited because they knew that they're not alone. When I shared the stories from Colombia and my hometown in Ukraine, and I gave them uh, the key to the city of Colombia, they were so happy to learn that there is such a big support. So this is kind of like the first thing. The second thing, if you can contribute financially, great. Find the organization that actually does the work on the ground. Because a lot of times we have big organization with huge overheads and it's not really meeting the need 
on the ground. And I'm happy to provide some links for people. I think that'd be great. And yeah. we can share that as well. We'd love to have that because, you know, that always becomes a question. You know, as you mentioned about these fake volunteers, there's also these fake organizations that swoop in on us because people are just they're so compassionate. They want to help. And suddenly, you know, they don't make the right decision. And so, yeah, you want to make sure that every dime is going to the folks that are there. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a lot of small organizations that kind of like came out of nowhere and also asking for funds. So you need to make sure that they're legit organization. They have a 501c3. They can provide the 990s at the end of the year. So everything works um, officially. And also that they have or Ukrainian people on the ground that know how to operate things because there is a huge cultural difference between the Western world and American and how we do things in America than in Ukraine. So we need to have somebody on the ground to really operate things. So this is what, what was one of the reasons that I chose to work with the organization I'm working for um, to kind of have the people on the ground to do the exact work that we need, that needs to be done. What um, are some of those challenges? I think it, I think people would be interested to understand that some of those cultural challenges that that sometimes prevent. What do you see as some of the hurdles there? Um, one one challenge, like for example, uh, our team is combined with uh, Canadians, American, and me as a Ukrainian, basically the born and raised Ukrainian, and. Um, we were talking about a, a, a project that we have in one of the schools to build a shelter in the school. So there is a boarding school that is not operating right now because there is no um, right shelter for the kids. So the government cannot approve them to go back to school. So we were talking about how work can be done and, you know, coming from the West and kind of like how things are being done. So you need to have a constructor, you need to have this person and this person, all those layers and the processes and from the people that I was working with, this is what they have in mind. And I'm like, you guys, it's, it's not working like this in Ukraine. You just bring the material, find the, the boys to do the work. They will do the work. Everything's great. So it's like those small things that Ukraine is still, you know, a little bit behind. And again, it's a wartime. So things are uh, kind of um, working in a more startup way. Yeah. All hands on deck. Exactly. And... Ukraine became very um, creative because life keeps going in Ukraine. People go to work, to school, they sit in cafes and going out because you cannot stop. Because if you stop, basically Russia won and we don't want this to happen. So people are finding creative way to continue living their life. And I think this is um, something to learn from and kind of like the, they have this resilience that we don't see a lot recently and uh, to see how the they pride, are. Yeah. The pride that the Ukrainian people have and have had the whole time is amazing. And, and it'd be really incredible if some of that spilled over into other places where people really, you know, sometimes I think we take a lot for granted for what we have. And, and, you know, we had this discussion the other day, it's the simple things that make a big difference. And when you look around our community and you see trash and, and, and things aren't well kept and you're like, you know, we live a pretty good life here. And there are other people who are suffering, who have much more pride in their community. They're out there sweeping their little, little spot in front of their house, even though there's destruction completely around it, but they're making sure that their peace is beautiful and nice and, and, and that to me is something that is inspiring about what I've seen 
online and on TV and the stories that we've heard is that willingness in that fight. And you know what? We're a proud people. We're not, we're not going to just, you know, leave and Mm -hmm. give up our homeland. And we're certainly not going to let the Russians take over. And of that, we can also talk about freedom and kind of like, I think that a lot of Americans take freedom for granted because many of us were born in a free country. And as one that in, I wasn't born in a free country and to see what they're fighting for, they're fighting for their own freedom, for their own existence. So kind of to look at that and say like, okay, I, I live pretty good here and I have everything and I live in a free country and I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And we can also talk about the leadership that we have young leadership and that I think Zelensky, President Zelensky is doing an amazing phenomenal job and people did not believe in him. I, I was getting ready to say, you know, yeah. when the election, it, he was on he was on every talk show, every people were kind of thinking it was a joke, but he has, has been unbelievable as a leader and standing up and fighting, being part of it, never relinquishing the pride or the efforts and, and, but also very pointed in his points, very clear about we need help and this is the help we need. It's not just, Hey, I need help. No, specifically, this is what I need to protect my country. I think, I think he's done a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, he branded Ukraine, basically. Ukraine was, I think that many people didn't, didn't know where Ukraine is on the map and who are the Ukrainians are and what we can do and what we have in our country. And basically he branded or like helped to brand Ukraine because Ukraine is a modern country. It's not, a lot of people have this imagination as like a small village that has nothing. Ukraine is one of the most developed countries in the world. Ukraine feeds over 400 million people around the world. So that's, Largest grain producer, yeah. uh, glass factories. I mean, the list goes on and on. A lot of products are produced and exported out of the Ukraine. So if you look at the consequences of this war, not only on Ukraine, but globally, it can affect and already affects all of us. So we need to kind of like do whatever we can to stop it as as soon as possible. And another point on the leadership, Zelensky is one of the youngest leaders in the world that we have right now. And I see myself also kind of like as a young leader. And sometimes it's very difficult to kind of like push to become a young leader because not necessarily people are going to believe in you and have doubts in you. And I think we as a society need to push for more younger leaders and give them the chance to do that and to give them the chance to take us to a better place. And I hope that the leadership in Ukraine kind of going to change the leadership aspect that we have right now. And I hope to see more young leaders. A lot of people are afraid of change and a lot of people are, are afraid of new ideas. And it's the fear factor of, oh, well, what happens if something goes wrong? Well, you know, it's okay. If you fail, it's okay. It's what you learn from that because you've tried something different. But think about if you didn't take that chance and you didn't make that change. I mean, so many things have been fixed and, and so many things have been cured. So many things have have empowered a community with economic development, growth, and stuff because somebody took a chance. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, I, I know there's the theory. Some people believe experience is worth more than anything. Well, I think today people have more experiences in a shorter distance than they did 
in generations before. Mm -hmm. You know, people, they didn't have as many experiences. And then, you know, we had some interesting gaps in our history, you know, after, you know, a lot of people never had been in a world, a war zone or never been part of, I mean, we we're spoiled as the U S we really haven't had a war on our soil that affected everything from electricity, our food, everything. So sometimes, you know, I think all those factors play into it, but I do, I do see a trend of people spending more time learning about the individual and, and seeing that, you know, I need to know the person. I don't need to be worried about if it's all the different factors. What What's their story? What's their passion and what's their history? What did they know? Because the backgrounds play a different in it. How you grew up plays a different role in it. Um, you know, I think learning our story and telling our story are more important today for people. They want to relate. They yeah. want to relate. And we can circle back to Colombia. There is a huge potential here to have young leaders to take us to the next level. We have a huge university and so much talent is coming to Colombia. And, and, and we haven't embraced it. And that's one of the things that we've been doing over the last year is embracing these 60,000 plus students and getting them integrated and getting them to be part of the process. We, we have an intercollegiate council that we meet with every month and finding ways that we can get the students involved in the community and with each other and in the business community. So they don't think they have to move somewhere else to get that, that they have those opportunities here and they're helping create those opportunities for mm -hmm. the future. So, um, but change is difficult. It, and sometimes it's, it's, it's time. always, it's always, it's always hard. And, and you can't be scared of change. Change is coming. Sometimes yep. you just have to decide what side of the coin to change you want to be on. And we all need to embrace it. Yeah. Look for better or for worse. It, it, it's, it's an important part of life. You know, um, somebody told me the other day, they said, you know, I, I respect history, but I don't live in it. Mm -hmm. And it was their simple way of saying, look, you know, we, we have to learn from our past. We have to respect our past, but we gotta, we gotta keep moving forward and moving forward means change. Things have to change for us to improve and to grow. We can't keep doing the same thing and moving. So I think there's a there's some good sentiment out there. I have to ask before we end the show, you know, a couple of things. Tell us what you loved about living in Columbia and like where were some of the places you snuck off to have dinner or drinks? You know, we want some insider of, of insights. Yeah. And I'm still living in Columbia. I'm not I'm not moving anytime soon um, because it's a great place to live and there is Everything is so accessible and you can find yourself doing everything. So I, I was hanging out a lot on Main Street, um, really enjoy going to Bourbon, um, have great drinks, great food. Um, and also we are a city with a lot of breweries. Compared to a small city, we have many breweries here. So yes, every weekend I was checking one of the breweries around. So that's great. Um, there is so many things to do here. And you can go and find yourself going to an amazing jazz show and then grabbing dinner and not uh, to, you know, not, not to pay a lot of money for that and to have such a high quality life mm -hmm. here. So this is something that I really like about Colombia. And it's very personal. You can, you know, be friends with everybody and um, everybody are very welcoming. Now, because of, of your background of being Ukrainian, is there a, a place in Colombia where you can get some Ukrainian treats? Is there some 
off the books places that you can go and get some some of of the specialties from from Ukraine? Not that I know of, but if one of the listeners of the podcast knows about something, please let me know so I will know about that. I always find I started finding out that you can go to Facebook and they have all these people that advertise food that's kind of off the books. It's like a hidden restaurant and you can find this person makes cake or this person does this and you suddenly you're like, God, this is really great, uh-huh. you know. And I just was curious if there was somebody making any of the Ukrainian specialties here. There are so many there are groups of Ukrainians here in Colombia. Um, well, they'll be at the, well, the international festivals coming what, mm-hmm. soon, right? Isn't it about that time again? I think so. I have to go look. Can't remember the dates, but it'll be here before long. Um, and we can see what they have and what they don't have and who's represented and who's not. And I can encourage some of the families to cook something. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, when you're in Israel... Ah, it's coming up. Good. It's coming up. So when you're in Israel, what's your go-to food item that you have to get when you hit the ground? It's like the first thing you do when you get there, I have to do this. There's so many. So first of all, the coffee in Israel is very good. So I immediately go to have a cup of coffee at the airport. That's my my first thing. Um, And second thing is all the fruits and vegetables are very good. Uh, They all have an amazing flavor to them. So it's soil driven. Yes. But um, tomatoes are rich tomatoes and kind of like amazing, amazing vegetables and fruits. And there is a lot of pastries, like salty pastries that are called boikas. It's like a, like a phyllo dough that it's like very, very thin. Mm -hmm. And inside you can have cheese or potatoes and stuff. It's amazing. One of my to-go things. And sabich, that's another thing. That it's from eggplants. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'll make you a list of all the things that yeah. you should eat in I Israel. Can't, I can't. <laughs> eggplant is something I've, it's, I I eat about everything there is, and we'll try everything, but I've never gotten a taste for eggplant. Mm. It's just something about it's, it. It all depends. How do you make it? Yeah. That probably and has they a lot make to do it, with. and also kind of like the quality of the eggplant, and there they, they have many eggplants that are very, very good. Okay, one time I took my mom to eat this dish called sabichta. So it's a kind of like fried-ish eggplant, but it's not like crispy. It's like more mushy. And then my mom eats this dish and she's like, what kind of meat is it? And I'm like, nope, that meat, that's an eggplant. So that's the the flavor. Of it. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm sad that, you know, when, when I travel, I build a lot of my travel around food. Like, I, I do a food tour in every city, every everywhere we've been around the world, we always do food tours. And I like to go to the market. I like to see what people are using for spices and how they cook it and, and be part of that. I cook a lot. So for me, that's that's part of So I have to do that wherever I go. I have to know these few places and uh always find these just cool little local places that you only find out from people who you've talked to who said, oh, somebody told me about this, you know, and it gets passed on. And we went to a place in in Lisbon that was the same way, and it had nine tables. I waited an hour and a half to get a reservation. Oh, wow. All right, so I was very patient. Might have been one of the most incredible meals that I had, and it it was all small plates that we shared, but... It was just exquisite. So 
I need that list for Israel because, you know, I'm bound and determined to get there. Um, I keep talking about it. I miss my opportunity and I'm going to try to, to redo it. But Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for, for, for one, staying in Columbia and, 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 and posting your flag here and using it as your, your, your home, as you're, as you're figuring out how to continue to support your home country and keep it, keep, our thoughts and our prayers, but also our actions focused on them and, and not let it drift away. Because like you said, the fight's not over and the rebuild has yet to begin. So there's a long way to go. And, and I think we all want to be part of that because I think there is a lot of support for the Ukraine. You see it worldwide. And um, I think, it, I think it's going to come out like a Phoenix out of the ashes, much stronger, much more beautiful and, and I think it's going to be a great thing, and I'm glad you're part of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for inviting me to share my story. And as you said, keep Ukraine in your minds, hearts, and actions. And I'm here if somebody has some questions or they want to look for ways to support Ukraine. And we're going to share some links, folks, too, through social media and other uh, ways of places that you can donate or you can volunteer or, you know, if you want to spend your spring break or your summer holidays, we can probably find a place for you to make a difference. 100%. Uh, and don't forget about the International, Columbia's International Festival. Raj will love for you to be there. Um, and if you haven't been there, my favorite thing to do is buy all the food tickets I can and eat from one country to another. Uh, uh, and there is some incredible food there. Absolutely incredible. Last year, it poured down rain when we were there, and it just made me eat more. <laughs> but I had so much fun talking to everybody about the dishes and people. This is my grandmother's recipe, or, you know, it really was so personalized, and I think that's what was so exciting for me. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Around Town. <laughs>